Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church. And if you're a part of Rungi FBC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's message, then turn your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, because this message is entitled, Between the Rock and a Hard Place. Have you ever been caught between a rock and a hard place? We all have been unwillingly part of a difficult situation where we pretty much lose either way we go. These situations are troubling, scary even, when they happen. But godly wisdom reminds us that everything happens for a reason. It's important to keep in mind that it's often the most difficult situations where we experience the most spiritual growth. Sometimes God brings us through hard times to teach us something new about himself, things we otherwise wouldn't know. So in a weird way, we can even learn to be grateful for hard times. James says this in James 1, 2 through 4. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Today we're going to study about the greatest rock in a hard place found in Scripture and discover what we can do when we find ourselves in difficult situations. Today we're going to continue studying about Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate and how he was hard-pressed to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. We're going to jump right into it because there's much to discuss in today's passage. So turn in your Bibles to John 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. This is what it says. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at the place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now this was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father God, as we studied this passage, I, I ask once again that your scripture would study our hearts. 
that God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the spirit of rebellion that we have in our hearts towards you. You know that we seek other things but you. But Father, I pray that you might just teach us something powerful about how Jesus faced his persecutors, that those we wanted to crucify him teaches us, um, the way he, he dealt with them teaches us something important about you. I ask God that you would teach us these things, and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's difficult to read these verses without getting emotional. Uh, when reading this passage, one of the questions that always seemed to bother me was, if Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent, why did he turn him over to be scourged? And, and to understand why Pilate did what he did, one really needs to look at the historical context uh, of the Roman-Jewish conflicts. Now, as, I, as I mentioned last week, Pilate and the Jewish leaders, they had nothing but contempt for one another. And we can begin to see this contempt when we read about how they talk to one another in Scripture. They seem to be exchanging blows and going back and forth about how to handle Jesus. For example, in last week's passage, we can uh, discern the little attitude came out of the Jews' response to Pilate's question, what accusation do you bring to this man? Which is a legitimate question, by the way. And, and, and the Jews responded, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. It's your job to figure this out. But they didn't give him a, a sufficient reason. And, and Pilate, you know, he hated the Jews just as much as they hated him. But they still had to work with one another to keep peace. And even though Pilate had no reason to punish Jesus, he turns him over to be scourged. Why does he do that? Well, it's in this passage of Scripture we can begin to see how Pilate is caught between a rock and a hard place. He, he knows he has to do something to appease this crowd, but he doesn't want to punish an innocent man. Well, why then does he turn him over to be scourged? Well, first we have to understand that there were actually three levels of Roman scourging. The first level was simply to, to whip a lawbreaker to teach them a lesson. It, it would draw blood, but it would leave the victim you know, able to recover. They wouldn't bleed to death. And the second kind of scourging was much more brutal, but it was nowhere near the intensity of the third, which was reserved uh, for those who were going to crucifixion. It was designed to speed up the death process. You know, in other words, they'd be bleeding to death. Um, and in the third level of scourging, the victim would be beaten with a whip that had metal pieces and sharp rock that were attached to it that would dig into the flesh and rip it from the body. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, that, that correctly uh, portrays what that process was. Now, the Gospel of Mark and, and the Gospel of Matthew, they talk about that third kind of beating where his flesh was ripped from his body. Uh, but each gospel only records one incident, which leads me to believe that Jesus underwent the scourging twice. Once here in the book of John, uh, which was the first kind of scourging, it was basically just to show that he was whipped. Okay, we, we gave him a whipping. But when he was condemned, he experienced the third kind of scourging. They sent him back to be beaten again. Now, Pilate subject, subjected Jesus to the whip to build sympathy for Jesus among the Jews. Um, we see this in the example uh, of Scripture, and we'll get to that in just a second. However, I just want to talk about in verse 2, <coughs> we see a little bit of a hostility <coughs> between the Romans and Jesus. And the question is, why? Well, the answer is because they hated the Jews. Jesus, not, not everybody got this kind of treatment. Jesus got special treatment. They crafted a crown of thorns, and they pushed it into his skull. Now, again, the imagery we get from the movies isn't entirely accurate when we imagine the crucifixion of Christ. We typically see a, a crown with, with small thorns on it that kind of, kind of pushed in and hurt a little bit. But historians believe that the thorns in this crown were like 12 inches long, which means that they pushed this crown deep into his skin. Now, if the Roman torturers hated Jesus, it was a special pleasure for these men to punish the man who's referred to as the king of the Jews. 
No, they, they hate Jews. Here's the king of the Jews. We get to see their plight when they not only put a crown of thorns on his head, but when after beating him, they dress him in purple, a color of royalty. But then they take turns hitting him in the face. In the other Gospels, we, we see this man, these men hitting him. They blindfold him and they hit him and they tell him to prophesy who was hitting him. In the book of John, we see they say, Hail, King of the Jews, before striking him. So it shows how much they, they enjoyed beating him. And yet in verse 4, Pilate brings forth Jesus after the scourging and says, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I, I find no guilt in him. Now, as Jesus comes wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate says to him, Behold, the man. Now, keep in mind, Pilate wasn't making a theological argument here to suggest that Jesus isn't the Son of God. What he's doing here is he's showing them a man he believes is innocent, who has thoroughly been punished to build sympathy for Jesus so that they might relent and let him go. However, he doesn't get the response from the Jews that he had hoped for. See, when the chief priests and officers saw him, there was no sympathy for him in their hearts. They began to shout, crucify, crucify. And to understand why they would say this, we have to understand what a rock and a hard place the Jews were caught between. I mean, this is a man that not only claimed to be the Messiah, but to be God himself. And all throughout the book of John, we have seen them wrestle with the concept of Jesus with being the Messiah. Some accepted and some didn't. But if these Jewish leaders accepted Jesus as the Messiah, it meant that everything he said about them was true. It would mean that not only they would lose their lucrative business in the temple and authority over the Jewish people, but that they would have to acknowledge that they themselves weren't in the right standing with God, that they have traded a relationship with God for a tedious religion in which they maintained in order to hold on to their pride and in order to keep them far away from God. And so in order to maintain their standing... They shouted with hostility, crucify, crucify. Again, we see Pilate's attempt to, to be out of this difficult situation. He tries anything and everything he can think of. He says, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, in their response, Pilate, uh, to Pilate, we, we see two things here. They, they responded to Pilate, two things can be learned. First, we can see that they're unwilling to let Jesus go. Uh, and second, they acknowledge that they brought Jesus to Pilate under false pretenses, and Pilate gets to see that. You see, they initially brought Jesus to Pilate under a, a, a political violation a violation of sedition. They, they presented him as a man who set himself up to be a king in opposition to Caesar. You see, they claimed Jesus' crime was political, and for that, he should be killed for it. However, now that Pilate had questioned Jesus and seen that he wasn't establishing a kingdom in this world to overthrow Rome, they quickly changed their tune. So they say to Pilate in verse 7, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. You see, they knew if they had led with this argument, Pilate would just dismiss them immediately. Their desire for killing Jesus wasn't political at all. It was theological. But notice Pilate's response after he heard this admittance from the Jews. Uh, scripture tells us that Pilate was filled with fear. Now, it's possible that when Pilate heard the Jews changing gears, he became uneasy about you know, the, the power of this multitude, multitude of people and how they were unwilling to let go of their bloodlust. Now, that's possible. However, I believe it's more likely that he recognized the reality that if Jesus truly was the Son of God, he was in real trouble. Whatever the question, uh, you know, whatever the reason, this response from the Jews caused Pilate to bring Jesus forward again for questioning. Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? That's kind of an interesting question, don't you think? 
This indicates to me that Pilate was terrified by the suggestion that Jesus might be more than a man. Where are you from? Talk about a rock and a hard place. Now, at this point, you can almost cut the tension with a knife. Pilate wanted nothing to do with this situation, and so he was questioning Jesus so that he could find a way to deliver Jesus from this crowd. Give me something. Come on. And the other day, I was discussing, discussing with my wife just how intriguing the person of Christ is to me. I never seem to get tired about uh, studying Christ. I mean, I, I, really, if there was another per, any other person, any other person that, I, that we studied this intently, it would be considered an, an unhealthy obsession. However, because it's God we're talking about, here's completely justifiable. And so I feel completely content studying about Christ. The fact that Jesus remained silent when Pilate questioned him is just simply amazing to me. Jesus had an out. Yet even after he had begun to taste the pain associated with what he must do, he continued forward. It's just incredible to me how he did that. Pilate, on the other hand, he is unable to respond with such wonder and amazement. He becomes frustrated with Jesus and asks him, Do you not know that I have a re- a re- the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus, however, responds with a magnificent, magnificent, excuse me, magnificent statement about the true source of authority in the world. In verse 11, he says, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me, me to you has greater sin. See, God had ordained Pontius Pilate to be the delegated authority here. God had placed his son at Pilate's mercy so that his will might be done and put Pilate in such a a difficult position that that he couldn't do anything but hand Jesus over to be crucified. And this is yet another example of how great our God is. We want to talk about free will, but Pilate didn't have free will here. He was forced to do what he was unwilling to do. The fact that he can use a person who is far away from him to accomplish his will is simply amazing. Jesus tells Pilate that he's only doing what his father has ordained him to do. Now, another interesting point I'd like to make in Jesus' response is that it seems to throw out a common myth or belief about sin. Now, many times I've heard people make the argument that all sin is equal in God's sight. And the argument usually sounds just like that. There is no difference between sin. All sin is equal in God's sight. And it's understandable why people would make this argument because we want others to know the seriousness of sin in God's sight, even the tiniest sin. And we can use this argument to portray all human beings as precisely the same. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short the glory of God. If all sins are equal and all people sin, then there is uh, not only no no one more holy than someone else, but then we might have no right to highlight any particular sin, or sinner for that matter. One way to manifest this manifest itself in today's culture is talking about things like homosexuality. Yes, homosexuality is a sin, as some Christians reluctantly concede. But if all sins are equal before God, then Christians should stop talking about it unless they too are willing to talk about impatience and anger and gluttony and greed and so on and so forth. However, even the Apostle Paul talks about how things like homosexuality and premarital sex that they are greater sins because it's sinning against one's own body. Not only is it not biblical to suggest that all sin is the same, it's not even necessary. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, you break the law, 
you're a lawbreaker, and thus you are an enemy with God. It doesn't matter how big or how small they are. You're a lawbreaker. Jesus said to those who turned him over to Pilate, excuse me, he said to Pilate that those who turned him over to him, that they were guilty of a greater sin. To give you this understanding that there is not all sins are equal before God mentality. See, it's true that there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. But we need to be, I guess we need to stop promoting this idea that all sin is equal in God's sight. Every sin equally makes us an enemy of God, but it doesn't mean that all sin is equal. Whatever the sin, it can be equally forgiven. However, there is no difference, There, or excuse me, there is a difference in God's sight between running a red light and rape and murder. See, my intention isn't to make a mountain out of a molehill. However, it's these big theological differences can often be determined by such minor details. And that's why I spend so much time on that. It's not to, you know, just, you know, become an advocate. It's in the little things that they often stack up. And so let's just be real careful to keep things biblically correct, okay? We see Pilate even more affected by Jesus' response, and that it says in verse 12, as a, re- as a result of this, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Now this is somehow the straw that breaks the camel's back for Pilate, and he turns Jesus over to be crucified. Why? Why is this the straw that broke the camel's back? Well, because being a friend of Caesar was a title that every Roman official strove towards. Um, if a person was considered a friend of Caesar, it meant that they had political autonomy and that they could have gained status in the empire. Now, the Jews were threatening Pilate here, saying that if he released Jesus, they would make certain that Caesar knew that he was promoting public disorder. And it was Pilate's job to maintain the status quo that Rome is invincible and could squash any insurgents with fury. To cause Rome to lose face in the eyes of the world only had one punishment by Caesar, execution. So in a way, the Jews were telling Pilate, crucify this man or you will be next. Scripture tells us that after Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and while seating himself on a place called the pavement, he said to the Jews, behold your king. It's a place of judgment. And um, the Jews responded, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? Now perhaps this was a trap set up by Caesar in a last-ditch attempt to release Jesus. But then again, maybe not. You see, the Jews claimed to serve any other king but Caesar. They would have been rounded up and the leaders of sedition would have been executed. So yet again, the Jewish leaders were caught between a rock and a hard place. And they spoke out saying, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now, if you remember at the beginning of this message, I talked about how we were going to study about the greatest example in Scripture of being caught between a rock and a hard place. And while we talked about so far about how the Jews were caught between a rock and a hard place and that they had to either publicly recognize that Christ could never do such things unless he were from God, uh, and even that, you know, that they were forced to admit that Caesar was their king, they served no other, or, you know, be rounded up, Pilate was also put into difficult situations where he wanted out of it. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be responsible for an innocent man's blood, but he also he, he wanted to be considered a friend of Caesar. So, you know, he was between a rock and a hard place. But you see, these are not the greatest example of someone being between a rock and a hard place. 
The greatest example in scripture of being between a rock and a hard place is found in the person of Jesus Christ. For if Jesus was faced, you know, he, he was faced with a difficult decision here. Either, either face the most excruciating punishment known to man and be crucified upon a tree, or he had to choose to let you and me face wrath when we reach the pavement of heaven. Jesus was caught between a rock and a hard place, but because of his great love for us, he willingly faced crucifixion. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, at some point in our lives, we must face the ultimate rock in a hard place. We are born into sin. We are made enemies with God. Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. You see, at judgment, we will have to give an accounting before God for the sins that we've committed, and, and, and that sin, it brings upon us punishment. But Christ offered to take our punishment from us. So that through the cross, we might surrender our lives over to him and be made right with God. You see, we are forced with a difficult decision. Do we, do we give up our lives and die to ourselves, give up our dreams, our ambitions, and our, all the things that we want for ourselves and live for Christ? Or do we continue living for ourselves and face the wrath of God? You know, because I have been enabled by the Holy Spirit to recognize what a position this left me in, I have surrendered my life to God knowing that I am not only giving up my life to be lived for myself, but that I have received a higher calling, which has the reward of eternal life. So when the Holy Spirit brings this into full view, it's... It's kind of a no-brainer, where it would be uh, as it would be a rock and a hard place, and that you have to give up your life. You gain so much more. The Apostle Paul says to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now you may be wondering why God allows us to suffer through situations where we are faced with difficult decisions, and and I just like to point back to the cross that He did not spare His Son from such things. In fact, His Son became the ultimate, ultimate example. Why does God allow us to be squeezed and squished between the rock and the hard place? Why doesn't he, once we have surrendered our lives to him, deliver us from such difficult times? Well, keep in mind that when Jesus, as he began this suffering, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that's not without meaning. Gethsemane means oil press. You see, in Scripture, olive oil was used for God's anointing. And the only way olive oil can be manufactured is to, you guessed it, crush the olive between a rock and a hard place. Jesus served as the ultimate example of being crushed between the rock and a hard place in order that he might anoint his people for salvation. So much symbolism in in Scripture, it's, it's incredible. God begins our life in him by forcing us to face a rock and a hard place that we must surrender to him or perish. And no, he doesn't deliver us from future difficulties in order that he might reveal something new about himself. As I stated earlier, it's often in these times where we have the most spiritual growth. The last thing that God wants for us is to have these times of difficulty without purpose. They serve a purpose. Instead of letting us go through these things for no reason, 
God uses those squeezing, squishing times between the rock and a hard place to cause us to depend on the only one who could withstand the oil press, our Savior Jesus Christ. And as a result, we are not left to suffer. We are caused to grow in Him through that suffering. And we can move forward in Him through those difficult times because of our love for Him, or rather because of His great love for us. I want to conclude by reading a passage of Scripture that I believe sums up my point better than I ever could. This passage encompasses the truth that although we as believers are put into difficult positions, we are never crushed, we are never destroyed, because we have Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-10 through 10 says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in us. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now, and we just thank you for this passage of Scripture, this beautiful example of how you Put yourself between the rock and the hard place for our gain. That you chose not to be delivered from crucifixion, but that you and your son chose death on a cross so that we might have life eternal. God, it just leaves us dumbfounded and and just standing in amazement and awe how you could have such a great love for us. And Father, I just pray that we might realize the lengths that you go through so that we might be delivered from your wrath. And God, I just, I ask that there's anyone listening right now that they might realize that you are the way of deliverance. That not only do you give us eternal life from delivering us from wrath, but that you give us an abundant life in the midst of suffering. That our pain has a purpose. That being pressed from every side does not mean that we are crushed. That we have you to deliver us from those things and that in those moments of weakness, in those moments of despair, we can choose to to try to make sense of it ourselves or we can just simply turn to you. We know that you are the only one capable of, of, of withstanding the rock in a hard place and that through that we have deliverance knowing that you overcame death and that we will too. While we might be killed, we will not be destroyed. Give us a power, a, a courage, a strength to stand up in the midst of persecution. Father, which I have to say in America is pretty mild. I mean, we get we get people talking about us, but and maybe even people's hostility, but the links that Christ went through, it's almost a joke to say that we're persecuted. And so, God, I, I just pray for strength and encouragement, knowing that as followers of you, 
that you're looking out for us, that you deliver us. You sustain us, you give us strength, you give us hope, you give us love. And that through that, we can stand with complete confidence that no matter what we face, no matter what rock and hard place we've been pressed between, that you will not let us be overcome. We thank you for this, Father, and I just pray, God, that you use this passage, use this message to speak to the hearts of those who need to hear it. They are loved, that they are forgiven, and that they must come to you. I love you, Father, and I just thank you for this gift of being able to speak your truth and all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.